0: and a warm welcome to first move really great to be back with you and a busy hour ahead coming up on the show including maui in mourning the death toll in the hawaiian wildfire disaster could surpass 100 lives lost today so far just three percent of the devastated area has even been searched for victims in what is already the deadliest u.s fire tragedy in over a century the latest from there just ahead plus Ruble route, the Russian currency hitting a near 17-month low versus the U.S. dollar. It's losing some 40% of its value, in fact, so far this year. This comes as the Ukraine war sanctions and weaker exports bite. And Taiwan tiff. US-China relations taking a fresh blow after Taiwan's vice president makes a brief stopover in New York. China is saying it's against any official interaction between Taiwan and the United States. Meanwhile, China got bigger issues, growing property sector woes, triggering fresh losses on the major Asian markets. The Hang Seng falling 1.5%, as you can see, plus shares of property developer Country Garden falling an additional 18% in Hong Kong trade after suspended trading in 11 onshore bonds. State-backed developer Sino Ocean also revealing that it's missed interest payments too. And reports say China's bank regulators have now set up a task force to examine weakness at one of the nation's largest private wealth managers that's also missed payments too. Now, in the meantime, a better tone elsewhere on global markets. The major U.S. averages set to bounce after last week's losses. Well, we're a little tilted to the downside at this moment, but it's volatile. Europe providing a mixed picture. The Zetradax there over in Germany, the outperformer. Plenty more to come on markets and more later in the programme. But first, Ukraine is strongly condemning what it calls Russia's provocative actions in the Black Sea. Moscow says one of its warships fired warning shots at a cargo ship on Sunday. Soldiers then boarded the ship. The Russians claiming it was headed to Ukraine. Hours later, Kiev accused Moscow of launching a barrage of missiles and drones at Odessa, the port City uh, has been repeatedly targeted by Russian forces throughout the war and Nick Payton-Walsh is in Nipro now for us. Nick it's not just about Odessa of course many of the ports that are crucial to grain exports have been targeted in, in recent weeks and months but now a cargo ship itself has been challenged too. What more do we know on this?
1: Yeah, it's an extraordinary brazen set of messages sent by the Russian Navy here. The Sukru Okan, uh, a uh, Palau-registered flagged uh, vessel, was essentially boarded by Russian military, backed up by a Ka-29 helicopter that hovered over the vessel. They released a video of that particular incident, indeed seemingly showing some of the crew sitting in a line uh, along part of that ship. As far as we know, the Sukru Arkan, which Russia said was headed for Ismail, didn't actually end up going there. Instead, it went to the Romanian port of Selina that essentially sits on the other side of the Danube River, near the mouth of the Black Sea. Why is all this happening? Well, Russia uh, pulled out of a grain deal, which should have allowed ships passage to take grain onto Ishmael International Markets. And essentially, it does appear that many ships decided to move regardless. Uh, and this is perhaps Russia's bid to show that it's still in control of those waterways. Whether they're able to do this for every single ship they have suspicions about, I very much doubt. We've seen how resource strained the Russian military is on the front lines here. The idea of them sending out a Ka-29 helicopter for every ship they want to have a look at uh, seems tough, but certainly very keen to show this message of control in the Black Sea. While at the same time, too, it's important to point out that some of their more important marine vessels have been hit by Ukrainian drones, even as far east as Novorossiysk. But at the same time, as we see Moscow losing control in other areas it would like to suggest its dominance, responding with brute force against civilian targets. You mentioned Odessa there, certainly that again the case. Remarkable images of a supermarket on fire, three apparently wounded there. Other targets hit, including a dormitory in Odessa, and also again Kharkiv, more shelling there. I should just remind people again over the weekend, the utterly chilling death of a 23-day-old baby girl called Sophia killed along with the rest of her family her 12-year-old brother and mother and father by shelling in Kherson in a village actually close towards the Black Sea itself this consistent drumbeat uh, of Russian targeting civilians even the very youngest persisting. Mm. Julia?
0: Nick, thank you for that. Nick Payton-Walsh there in Dnipro. Meanwhile in Russia, signs that the economy is facing pressure from both sanctions and dwindling exports. The dollar hitting a 17-month high against the ruble. For context, the Russian currency has lost nearly 40% of its value so far this year. Claire Sebastian joins us now on this. Claire, I think the surprise here really is that the weakness that we're seeing hasn't happened before. The question is how much more do we see and what do the central bank do to try and perhaps step in and mitigate this?
2: Yeah, Julia, I think that is the question now, 18 months into this war. Obviously, the, the currency did fall quite significantly in the first couple of weeks. But they've rebounded as the central bank brought in all these emergency measures. And of course, as we saw, huge revenues come in uh, from oil and gas as those prices came up. Obviously, now some of that trend is in reverse. Oil and gas prices have fallen for some of this year. Russian revenues from oil and gas are down some 40 percent in the first uh, part of the year, first half of the year. And that is contributing to a a situation where really the trade balance has been turned upside down to some degree. The current account surplus uh, is down some 85 percent in the first half of the year. And this is what the central bank is really attributing uh, to the fall in the currency. Imports uh, have surged as demand uh, has returned and exports have come down, of course, with oil and gas being the biggest contributor. It could still continue. The central bank is saying today uh, that they may step in and raise rates again at their next meeting. They just did so by a full percentage point in July for the first time in more than a year. you remember they've been bringing rates down uh, really since sort of the, the late spring of last year after they had to raise them as an emergency measure. At the beginning of the war, they may have, have to now keep raising them. So that's one thing. Uh, but I think This is all as well something to bear in mind. I was just talking to an economist who reminded me that for the Russian people, this exchange rate is very psychological. Russia is a country which has sort of money change shops pretty much on every corner. They will walk past and see these triple digit numbers. And so the government is out today trying to reassure the people and advise it to the Kremlin saying the central bank has all the tools it needs to fix this.
0: Yeah, the problem is when they start to raise interest rates and have to do so perhaps even more aggressively than they're really going to feel it. It's a sort of double whammy. Claire, good to have you. Thank you. Claire Sebastian there. Now, the desperate search for life continues on Mari. At least 96 people have been killed by the Hawaii wildfires, making it the deadliest US fire in more than 100 years. And there are still fears that those numbers could rise even further. Here's what one woman, who's lived on Maui for over 30 years, told Mike Valerio.
3: When I drove through on Friday, I had no clue what I was going through. I got so, um, everything's gone. I lost friends in there, you know, they were going back to get their animals, you know, and she died. So, I mean, you know, it's really sad because people come over here, you know, I heard there was a snorkeling boat looking at Lahaina Town. Give them respect. You know, it's so bad. This is, you know, people died here. You know, people, I mean, it's not just a vacation. It's not just a place for vacation. We live here.
0: And Mike joins us now from Mari. Mike, I'm sure you've had many conversations like that. It's truly heartbreaking to listen to. I I said earlier on the show that just 3% of the impacted area has even been searched for victims of these fires. Just talk us through those efforts first and foremost.
4: Well Julia, I think you're right and perhaps that is the understatement of the morning right there to just try to grasp the crescendo of emotions that we are hearing right now. We have not reached the peak of that even though the fire danger is diminishing. So in terms of what comes next, I think that people are searching for a sense of accountability and then looming large is the search for human remains the search for the missing and it is so delicate of the burn zone has been searched and that's because it's incredibly complicated and sensitive to search inside the concrete, inside the wooden structures that have collapsed and it's completely, it is of the uh, utmost delicate operations to perform. Because Julia, we're here for several days and we listen to these news conferences where experienced veterans of search and rescue, when there are so many dangers from Lava, volcanoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, they talk about this situation and they say that when they find bones, when temperatures reached 500 degrees Celsius in the middle of this inferno, the bones of somebody's father, mother, disintegrate to the touch. And that is why they need to take days or perhaps weeks to search through the epicenter of this disaster area, because it's the responsibility, the solemn duty that they hold. And that is not lost on any of them.
0: No, Heartbreaking duty. Mike, thank you for that report there from Maui. Now, powerful winds and drought conditions combined to make the wildfires in Hawaii so dangerous. In some places, fire was spreading at a rate of one and a half kilometers every minute. Derek Van Dam joins us on this. Derek, you certainly can't outrun that. You're even in danger trying to drive away from that in a car. Is there any hope that some of these conditions, at least the strong winds, are going to get a reprieve?
5: Yeah, Julia, that exceeds even some of the fastest highway speeds here in the United States. So that's really saying something. And yeah, you cannot outrun something like that. But uh, the the reason for these strong winds is really, and and the wildfires, is a compounding list of factors, right? You you mentioned this rapid onset of drought conditions that really materialized within the past couple of months. But it's also a factor of what was a passing hurricane that stoked the winds across uh, the Hawaiian Islands, particularly into Maui. Uh, this pressure gradient with a high to the north and the, the hurricane, which is a low pressure system, uh, we see winds move from high to low or air moves. And just because of that uh, gradient there, we saw the strong winds gusting in excess of 100 kilometers per hour in some instances. Now, get this, 80% of the state of Hawaii under abnormally dry conditions. But when we focus in on Maui County, particularly the westward side, we call that the leeward side of the island, the severity of the drought has increased, the severe index I should say, increased uh, over 10% from this time last week. So a vast marked difference in the drought conditions that continue to, uh, uh, to continue to build there. Now this is very interesting. If you go back since 2006, there have been no re- rainy seasons with above average precipitation and there's been 10 seasons with below average precipitation. So this is also one of those compounding factors that we add on top of that. So Lahaina, uh, really sits in a very precarious position, because the majority of the trade winds out of this area come from the northeast. So it comes up and over the mountain ranges. So it brings the rainfall to the windward sides. But the leeward side, unfortunately, the exact opposite process takes place. It dries out the air. We see the winds pick up. And uh, the temperatures can increase as well. So when we get these large wildfires that perhaps start on the upper sides of the mountain slopes, in the upcountry we call that in the uh, Maui County region, we get the strong gusty winds coming up and over the mountain ranges. We get spot fires that take those little embers. They can travel so quickly, start additional fires down, uh, down the silo- slopes, down the terrain. And that is why we saw this fire spread so quickly. Now, the forecast trade winds through this week are expected to pick up to moderate strength through the next couple of days as yet another tropical system passes well south of Hawaii. But nonetheless, we're going to be monitoring this very closely uh, to see how this impacts things. Julia.
0: Derek Van Damme, thank you. Taiwan will never back down to China's threats. That was the message from Taiwan's vice president as he made a stop in New York en route to Paraguay. Beijing calling the frontrunner in Taiwan's presidential race, quote, a troublemaker through and through, as Paula Hancock's reports.
6: Taiwan's vice president, transiting through the United States to travel to Paraguay, has angered Beijing as it was expected to do. Uh, William Lai arrived in New York on Saturday. He is leaving uh, for Paraguay on August the 15th. Now, Beijing has said that there should be no direct interaction between the U.S. and Taiwan. It does consider Taiwan to be part of its territory, despite never having had uh, control over the self-governing Ireland. Now, we did hear from Lai on Sunday. He was meeting with Taiwanese American uh, community officials and he did say that Taiwan would not back down in the face of this increased threat from China.
4: No matter how great the threat of totalitarianism is to Taiwan, we will never be afraid or back down. We will always uphold the values of democracy and freedom.
6: A U.S. senior administration official says that these kind of visits are unofficial and they are in keeping with the one-China policy. Uh, Also saying that they are fairly routine. Lai himself, in fact, has uh, already had transit visits to the United States at the beginning of last year. But all of these visits do anger Beijing. Now, we have a statement from uh, MOFA, from the foreign ministry, uh, saying that, quote, Lai Ching-te clings stubbornly to the separatist position for Taiwan independence. He is a troublemaker through and through Beijing, saying that there should not be this direct interaction between the U.S. and Taiwan. But there have been many transit uh, visits in the past. In fact, just earlier this year, President Tsai Ing-wen went to the United States. She was on her way to Guatemala and Belize. Uh, And she did meet with uh, high-ranking U.S. officials, including Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker. Paula Hancock's CNN Soul. Okay, coming up,
0: the orange growing blues. Florida's citrus owners squeezed by bad weather and disease. And orange juice futures are soaring. Our focus on food price inflation just ahead. Plus, fishing fever, ransomware attacks on the rise yet again. We'll speak to the CEO of cybersecurity firm Checkpoint on how best to reel in the hacktivists. That's coming up. Stay with us.
3: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Welcome
0: back to First Move. Food inflation in both the United States and Europe has eased over the past few months. But serious challenges to global food supplies remain, driven in part by the war in Ukraine And the impact of climate change and extreme weather in the United States in particular. You can add to that a devastated greening disease that's done serious damage to orange crops. Production is set to fall to its lowest in decades, which will surely put upward prices on Put upward pressure on prices. The problem so severe that some orange growers have decided to give up on the citrus business altogether. Now, Matt Joyner is the CEO of Florida Citrus Mutual, and he joins us now. His group represents some 2,000 Florida citrus growers. Matt, good to have you with us. You guys have been through some incredibly tough times just on the weather front in the past year. I think two hurricanes and then a late season freeze was sort of the beginning of the season. Where are we today?
7: Julia, that's right. This past season was one for the record books. Uh, we are, uh, saw a, a decrease in production that put us at a low we've not been at in, in over a hundred years. Uh, two major hurricanes hit our most productive citrus growing regions, and, and as you point out, a, a late season freeze, which impacted our trees and our bloom. And so, uh, where the prior season we had been over forty million boxes of citrus, uh, we ended at about. 16 million boxes of oranges this past season. So a decline of over 60% uh, from the prior year, just as a result of these uh, natural disasters.
0: Natural disasters are one thing and extreme weather is, is tough to mitigate. But the other challenge that you're also dealing with at the same time is what I mentioned, greening disease. Can, can you help us understand what actually this is and, and how devastating an impact it has?
7: Sure, absolutely. So citrus greening is a bacterial uh, disease that impacts the health of the trees. It's been in Florida in commercial production since about 2005. It is a, a disease that is incurable and has been in citrus regions around the world for uh, hundreds of years. But Florida has only been dealing with this for about two decades, and it ultimately impacts the health of the tree and the tree's productivity. So as the years have gone on we've continued to see a decrease in our production as a result of this devastating disease
0: and even if you replant the trees how long before the newly replanted trees may also catch the disease
7: so typically the psyllid that feeds on the new flush of trees that that pass, uh, uh spreads greeting throughout commercial production can infect a tree within six to eight months of, of being planted. So we're effectively 100% infected here because even when we put new trees in within a year, they, they're typically infected with green greening.
0: What about genetically modified seeds to enable them to be more resistant to this kind of disease? Is that being worked on? Are you utilizing any of that? Because surely this is the critical use now of technologies to try and improve crops like this when they're impacted by disease such as greening?
7: So the industry has been expending a lot of their own resources as well as state and federal help on uh, finding cures to greening and breeding certainly is one of those. And and we know that ultimately a resistant tree is what's going to be the gold standard for our industry here in Florida, but around the world, because everybody ultimately is dealing with this uh, disease in the major production areas around the world. And so, yes, we are utilizing conventional breeding. We're looking at CRISPR technologies and other uh, more high-tech breeding uh, solutions that may get us there quicker.
0: Yeah, but that's a a longer-term play, or at least a medium-term play. And to your point, What's added to the global impact, I think, on orange juice futures as they're they're traded, is that this is not just about the United States and then those that you represent, Brazil, Mexico, also key exporters of oranges, and and they're facing the same challenges, be it weather and also the challenges of disease as well.
7: That's right. We're seeing obviously production is is very constrained here in Florida, but we're seeing it globally as well, and and certainly that's putting upper prices on, on the. Um, orange juice commodity markets.
0: How much higher might these prices get, Matt?
7: You know, I, I don't know. And obviously, season to season, we're very hopeful as we look at this upcoming season. There are some therapies that will not cure greening, but that we know have, are effective against it. And and we've just been deploying those in the last 12 months. So, we're optimistic that our production is going to begin to level off and, and start to uh, go back up again. And, and certainly, uh, around the world, as weather events uh, are uh, maybe uh, less impactful this coming season, perhaps we'll see supplies uh, go up and, and some of the price increases mitigated.
0: Yeah, The longer term challenges, and perhaps you can talk more in depth about this, is perception and certainly the view that drinking a whole glass of orange juice is less healthy. There's too many fruit sugars than perhaps just eating the orange itself. And that takes more time and and also saves on, on the calories and, and the sugars. Because we have seen declining consumption of orange juice, even if that picked up again at the early stages of the pandemic. Matt, how do you challenge that? And I, I wonder in an environment where prices are rising, that actually the the demand is sort of less inelastic than you would like it to be simply because people are already questioning whether they should be drinking it in the first place?
4: Sure,
7: that, that's an age old debate. But to your point, we saw a, a real increase in consumption as a result of the pandemic. As people remembered the health benefits of, of orange juice, particularly to the immune system, It's one of the most nutrient dense uh, drinks that are out there, juice drinks that are out there. And, and while it does contain sugar, it's natural sugar. There's no sugar added to the, the product that, that we produce. And so it's as good as eating an orange. But to your point, it's a little bit more efficient sometimes to just pour a, a nice uh, glass of orange juice.
0: My trouble is once I pour one, I don't stop. So I, I keep drinking it. So I, I'm definitely sold on the at least the taste benefits of, of orange juice. Um it is an age old debate and we don't need to have it again. But are you saying actually that you think consumers will continue to pay higher prices, even if that's what they're, they're forced to do?
7: I do think that consumers will continue to buy it. It is the best selling uh, juice in the category on the market. And it will continue to be because it is something that, that uh, consumers really relate to in terms of a breakfast drink. And so uh, we would anticipate that it, with even prices going up, that consumers will still reach for that a jug of orange juice when they're in the supermarkets.
0: And are you seeing your farmers that that you represent, Matt, looking at other options, wondering whether actually the farmland itself is of more value perhaps than the crop yield and what they can sell the produce for? It's a tough decision wherever you are, I think, in the world. But certainly here in the United States, the question is worth asking, I think.
7: It is a hard decision, and particularly with a state like Florida, where people are moving here in record numbers uh, every year. And so certainly there's development pressures and other pressures on producers. But, you know, there's three states in the union that, that really grow citrus well. And Florida does what it does better, in my opinion, than any other state. And so uh, this land, it's hard to find other alternative crops that do as well as citrus. And so I think that we'll continue to see our growers uh, persevere. We've seen a little bit of contraction in the industry and and that's to be expected, but we're also learning to uh, produce more on on less acreage in terms of uh, higher density plantings and other things. And so I think that as we recover from this uh, greening disease and the impact of these storms this past season, uh, we'll see that, that farmers are ready to reinvest and continue to produce the, the orange juice that consumers have, have come to love.
0: Yeah, the fight goes on. Matt, great to chat to you. Thank you. Matt Joiner, there, the CEO of Florida Citrus Mutual. Okay, stay with CNN. More to come. Ecuador in a state of emergency after the assassination of a presidential candidate. We've got an exclusive interview with his former running mate next. Welcome back to First Move, and a lot lies in store this week for us to explore. A choppy August for stocks so far, we cannot ignore. Major retailers set to report earnings galore, and of course, tell us what's in store. And in sport, the England Lionesses are ready to roar. Of course, we are. Good luck to England's Women's World Cup team in their semi final showdown with Australia on Wednesday. In the meantime, on Wall Street, far from a roar to start the week after last week's losses that saw the Nasdaq drop almost two percent. Tech now down, in fact, almost five percent so far this month. But of course, context as usual is everything. The Nasdaq still up a whopping 30 percent year to date. Now to Ecuador, and the presidential debate started with silence on Sunday as candidates honoured the murdered presidential candidate, Fernando Vincenzo. A state of emergency was declared after his assassination last week, and six suspects in the killing have been arrested. Now, in an exclusive interview, his former running mate spoke with Rafael Romo, and she told him it's a disturbing time for Ecuador's democracy.
8: I think any other Ecuadorian is at the risk of getting shot right now in the street.
9: She was supposed to be there, as his running mate Andrea González Nader should have been right next to Ecuadorian presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio when he was shot last Wednesday as he was leaving a rally in Quito, the capital.
8: Fernando was shot three times in the head.
9: Has it sunk in that you could have died because you were supposed to be right next to Fernando that night when he yes. was shot dead
8: yes i was supposed to be there next to him getting inside the car that had no protection against bullets and we were no bulletproof vest because we were trying to get the people this message that we had to be brave
9: in an exclusive CNN interview at a location we're not disclosing for her safety, González said Villavicencio's murder is yet another gruesome and shocking example of how fragile democracy is in Latin America as a region. But living in fear, she says, is not an option.
8: I want to change this country. I want this country to be a place of peace, a productive country. We're known around the world for our incredible chocolate, our bananas, our shrimps, our coffee. I love I love Ecuador deeply. I believe Ecuador is a paradise and they've turned it into hell.
9: Villavicencio was a 59-year-old lawmaker in the National Assembly known for being outspoken about corruption and violence caused by drug trafficking in the country. Ecuador se ha convertido en un narco in May, he told CNN in Espanol that Ecuador had become a narco state. His political platform was centered on leading a fight against what he called una mafia politica the political mafia.
8: We knew it was, there was a high risk of him getting attacked by the same mafia and the same organized crime and the same politicians that are linked with this organized international crime.
9: After the assassination, current Ecuadorian President Guillermo Lazo declared a state of emergency for 60 days. On Saturday, 4,000 members of the Ecuadorian police and military raided a notorious prison in Guayas province and transferred an alleged leader of a local drug gang to another facility. Gonzalez says organized crime is a regional problem that requires a regional solution. How does Ecuador solve its security problem? Is it something that Ecuador can do by itself, or does it need help from the international community?
8: We need teamwork from international intelligence to find out how to stop this. Cocaine is done in Colombia, and got, got, gets through Ecuador, through our coasts where it goes back to Mexico, and then it's delivered to United States and Europe.
9: Ecuadorians go to the polls on August 20th for the first round of an election to choose a new president. But even something as simple as voting is an act of courage in this country, and many may decide to stay home. Rafael Romo, CNN, Quito, Ecuador.
6: More fast Move after this.
10: The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting
3: down graduation events. At this moment,
0: Welcome back to First Move. How many phishing emails did you receive in the past week? My perhaps more important question how many did you actually spot? Well, attacks using methods such as ransomware were up nearly 40% last year. That's according to cybersecurity firm Checkpoint. And healthcare and the healthcare industry is in the crosshairs. Attempts to hack hospitals and clinics in the United States alone rose a staggering 78% in 2022. The industry saw an average of more than 1,400 attempted breaches per week per organization. And that's where Checkpoint says it can help. The Israel-based firm says it's guarding over 100,000 organizations around the world, including big names like Amazon, Microsoft and Google. And joining us now is Checkpoint CEO Gil Schwed. Gil, fantastic to have you on the show. Just start by explaining what you're seeing and why you think we're seeing far more of these attacks.
11: So first, it's a pleasure being here and thank you for hosting me. And yes, we are seeing a constant increase. Checkpoint is now 30 years in the cybersecurity business, we kind of invented it 30 years ago. And unfortunately, there is an increase in the in the attack uh, landscape for, for all those years. And the last two, three years have been fairly critical. I think first there is far more to attack on cyberspace. You know, all our assets today from our financial assets to our identities are online. Every company is now online. You know, 15 years ago, some company says, said we're going to keep ourselves kind of disconnected. Today, everything is connected. And and second, the hackers are getting more and more sophisticated. We are now in the midst of what we call the fifth generation of attacks. These attacks are far more sophisticated. They are bigger. They are kind of running in stealth mode. So it's very hard to, uh, we call them polymorphic. It's very hard to identify them because they look different each time. And the, and the kind of the advance of a cryptocurrency has led to the fact that it's even easier to monetize them and to make money out of cybercrime. So,
0: there's a number of elements going on here. I think, to your point as well, it's becoming simpler to develop those attacks and writing the malware, I think, to do it. Overlay what you're already seeing with perhaps the use and utilization of generative AI tools. Are we? approaching a point where you can literally say to a chat gpt like function, um, write me some malware to do X, Y and Z without understanding anything to do with coding and, and utilize
11: it. So absolutely, that's a big change that we've seen this year. If before, you know, ransomware or not ransomware, any all the cyber attack tools have been on the Internet and you can utilize them. You don't have to write them. You can use them like any other software tool. But in previous year, you needed to be a high level of expertise. Today, generative AI make it very, very accessible from the ease of uh, writing a targeted phishing email. Actually, you, you, you talked about the phishing emails. Usually when you see a phishing email, it looks kind of unprofessional and you see that, The person who wrote it is not uh, the perfect uh, English speaker to write the perfect email. With tools like Generative AI, you can write a targeted phishing email in seconds. Just say, write an email from the CEO of the bank to the customers, asking them to do something and you'll get a perfect phishing attack in every language, not just in English. And then you can use the same tools to write the code in the back end of that to capture customer details, to, to write the server that actually does the bad, the bad job. So yes, we've seen that it's relatively easy to do that, even though I must say that the AI companies are doing their best to limit that, but you can easily trick them. And the, the level of sophistication you need to be in order to develop an attack today is, uh, is much lower.
0: But surely also there are benefits in this technology on the defense side as well. Perhaps the problem, unfortunately, is that they only have to get it right and catch you once. And on the defense side, you have to get or repel them every single time.
11: Absolutely, yes. I mean, we are using AI in our products for we've developing that for a long time. And the generative AI can also work in our Front And by the way, which we've seen too in, in companies like Checkpoint, that uh, if before we had to develop a super intelligent system to identify malicious uh, content and so on, and it took months and years, today with AI we can develop this kind of systems in a matter of days by training them on large sets of data, which is one of the benefits that, that we have that data, that we collect it every day in billions of transactions. Um, and on the same, and so in, just to give you an example, in Checkpoint we have over 70 kind of threat intelligence. Uh, we call it threat cloud technologies that that are identify and stop attack. Over 40 of these technologies are already AI based, not necessarily generative AI, but over 40 are AI based, and that's very very helpful also on the defense side.
0: Is it also part of the problem here that we've been through a pretty tumultuous time for the tech industry in general? And while there have been benefits occurring to some of the clients that you have and the larger tech companies and particularly those that are playing in the AI space for, for other companies, it's hard to raise money. They're having to make tough decisions as any company over how you spend money. And perhaps that's limiting a budget amount that they would provide to, to addressing cybersecurity threats? Are you seeing that from clients? Because I know your businesses have looked at your earnings has been pretty resilient, but tough choices are being made.
11: So that's also a factor. I mean, overall, during the COVID time between 2020 to 2022, we kind of saw and. Big increase in IT spending, but the last uh, kind of eight, nine months have been quite tough in the industry and companies shifted their priorities and are holding back on investment. For startup companies with developing technologies, it's even much, much tougher. Companies have used to raise unlimited amount of money to have plenty of resources. And the last uh, few months have been the last year, not just few months, have been quite tough for companies to raise money. I think the secret of that, by the way, is not the solution is not just more money. The solution is actually to make cybersecurity more accessible, simpler. We call it the free Cs of cybersecurity, to make solutions that are comprehensive, addressing all the attack vectors, consolidate them so you can actually manage them, install them, work with them, and most important is what we call collaborative so when all the different technologies work together so when you identify a phishing email on your mail server you know how to stop that malware when you download it from google or when it arrives to your mobile phone or when it's sent to you in other way and what i'm saying sounds very obvious but today it's not obvious the big organizations today are using easily a dozen different security vendors the big companies between 50 to 250 security vendors. And that's just too complicated and mainly doesn't generate the security value that you need. So we need to make the security solution work together. And through that, I think we can not just fight the economy, but fight the hackers and produce a better uh, security.
0: Yeah. Layered security in this case, if it's old and added to, is leaky to your point. And actually, it's a great pitch for your business as well, which I am, (laughs) which I've now let you do. Um, I think many of our viewers will notice that you're also coming to us from Tel Aviv, and a number of, in particular, I think, tech companies have stood out, raised their voice, CEOs like yourself, amid the concern and the protest over. The government's decision to enact judicial reform and and beyond Gil, you've also said that you're very concerned as someone who fought to launch a business in israel what has and perhaps will that change for you as a, as a business leader
11: if things continue so first in yes in the last uh, few months in the last more than six months there have been constant demonstration here in israel um, and of course, it's not a great thing for the economy. And again, I'm trying to stay away from getting into politics, so I'm not. I'm not going to say any opinion about what's going on in politics. But but the demonstration in the street does have an effect on everybody's mood, and that has an effect on the economy. For a company like Checkpoint, it hasn't affected our business much. But for small startups and big part of the Israeli industry is made of uh, startups, it's becoming tougher and tougher to raise money and to to be in business. Um, So that has a toll on the economy. Uh, But on the same time, I just don't want to be too pessimistic. I think Israel is a very good country. We like our country. I think there's plenty of top talent here in high tech. Um the people are super committed to their work, to their mission in technology, whether it's in cyber or in uh, ASIC design or in gaming or in web systems. We have amazing industry here and amazing people that work hard. So I definitely hope, and I'm, I'm optimistic, and I think I've, through my career, I've seen many crises that will come out of that crisis and hopefully will come out even stronger.
0: Yeah, I like your optimism on this. And to your point, it doesn't change the quality of the talent that's based in Israel. Do you think, though, and you mentioned it for smaller tech companies, too, there does come a time where you make a decision perhaps to um, headquarter the company elsewhere, even if you're still utilising the talent in in Israel. Is that the risk to your point about the challenges of, of raising money in particular? And that's a poignant one.
11: I think it's a challenge. It's a challenge mainly, by the way, to Israel as a country, less to the industry, less to our customers. Because let's remember, all the Israeli companies, we operate in the global market. Our target market is outside Israel. It's mainly the US, but it's all over the world. So even for a company that's large like Checkpoint, 98% of our business is outside Israel. And then there's a question, do you want to be registered and listed as an Israeli company or as an American company? Regardless of the question, if you're using Israeli talent as your backbone of development. Now, for the customer, it has less effect for Israel, it has a big effect because if the company is registered in Israel, it will pay taxes in Israel. It will do more supporting functions in Israel and not just the developers will be here, but also the lawyers and the accountant and the and more sales and marketing functions will be in Israel. So for the Israeli economy, it is important that we will be Israeli companies, more and more Israelis. Um, We've worked for many years to change that perception and to make it for investors. And remember, also, our investments are coming mainly from overseas. So investors felt pretty well in the last uh, decade or decade and a half to start companies in Israel. And we hope it doesn't change because, you know, for the investor, it's easier to say just list the company in Delaware like I'm used to. And then it will have some effects longer term.
0: Yeah, those decisions can be made very quickly. And the fight to grow a company is um, a battle that you've had for far longer. There's an important message in there. You'll come back and talk to us soon, sir. Thank you. I appreciate your wisdom. All right, still to come. Let's get ready to rumble or not. Mark Zuckerberg says Elon Musk, quote, isn't serious about fighting him. I mean, really more from both sides next. Welcome back to First Move. Former U.S. President Donald Trump calling Georgia's Fulton County District Attorney phony as he faces a potential fourth indictment. Prosecutors in the state expect to bring charges over alleged attempts to overturn the election results. Trump saying, quote, no, I didn't tamper with the election. Those who rigged and stole the election were the ones doing the tampering. As Sarah Murray reports.
10: Security precautions already underway at the courthouse in Atlanta. As Fulton County District Attorney Fani Willis is expected to begin her grand jury presentation this week on former President Donald Trump and his allies alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. We've been working
8: for two and a half years. We're ready to go.
10: It's the clearest sign she intends to seek charges this week as the widespread investigation into election interference comes to a head. Jeff Duncan, Georgia's former lieutenant governor and CNN contributor, confirming he's been summoned to appear before the grand jury.
5: I did just receive notification to appear on Tuesday morning. I'll certainly answer whatever questions put in front of me.
10: Independent journalist George Cheaty posted on social media he's also been called to testify Tuesday. Cheaty said he walked in on a group of shadow electors gathered to sign an illegitimate certification for then-President Trump in December 2020.
3: They all but frog-marched me out of the room and then they posted somebody out front to make sure nobody else went in.
10: In addition to putting forward fake electors and the infamous phone call from President Trump to Georgia's Secretary of
3: State... I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes
10: The breach of voting systems in rural Republican Coffee County is part of the probe. Sources tell CNN investigators have long suspected the breach was a top-down effort by Trump's team, rather than an organic effort by Trump backers. And sources say they have text messages and emails that directly connect members of Trump's legal team to that breach. Did you have any sense that this was sort of tied to other operatives in the Trump campaign, that it was anything beyond sort of lower-level people in Coffee County?
3: Not initially,
9: but uh, there are allegations, and, and then as you dig down deep, more is revealed, and then you realize that that wasn't truthful.
10: Surveillance video previously obtained by CNN shows a local election official escorting a team of pro-Trump operatives in to examine the machines on January 7, 2021. The group included Scott Hall, an Atlanta bail bondsman and Fulton County Republican poll watcher. I'm the guy that chartered the jet
7: to go down to Coffee County to have them inspect all of those computers. They scanned all the equipment, imaged all the hard drives, and scanned every single
10: ballot. According to text messages obtained by CNN, former county elections official Misty Hampton authored a quote, written invitation six days prior to examine machines. That invitation shared with attorneys working with Trump and others, hunting for election fraud on behalf of Trump's then-lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Just landed back in D.C. with the mayor. Huge things starting to come together. An employee for the firm hired to access voting machines wrote in one text in an apparent reference to former New York Mayor Giuliani. We were just granted access by written invitation to Coffee County Systems. Yay, another message reads.
0: Now, a much-hyped battle of the billionaires might not happen after all. Posting on his platform threads, Mark Zuckerberg says Elon Musk isn't serious, quote, about a proposed cage fight. The Meta founder claims he offered a date, but Musk mentioned needing surgery. Zuckerberg says simply, if Elon ever gets serious, he knows how to reach me. He might be um, waiting a while that phone call or tweet x thread whatever it is that's it for the show connect the worlds up next we'll see you tomorrow
3: quality sleep is essential and that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs so you can choose what's right for you whenever you like need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature quiets their snores sleep number does that sleep better together